for hundreds of years. The high priest gets up early on the 10th day of the seventh month, the seventh Hebrew month. It was a special day. It was the holiest of all days. It was a day of atonement. It was called Yom Kippur. Aaron, let's use Aaron. That's a good high priest name. Aaron. Aaron, the high priest, was exceptionally alert on Yom Kippur the Day of Atonement. He feared God and knew he would die if he didn't obey every one of God's commandments. (laughs) On the Day of Atonement, Aaron was the only one that would be allowed into the tabernacle. That was until the blood was sprinkled and Israel was made right For some reason, God chose this way once a year. The priest then would go into this tabernacle, and and he would bathe, and he would put on sacred garments. There would be three animals in the courtyard, one bull and two goats. At that time, he sacrifices the bull And he gathers the blood. Then he sacrifices the goat. And he gathers the blood. Aaron then lights some incense. And he pulls back the heavy veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. And as he separates that, he goes into the Holy of Holies with the blood and the incense burning. Now, it's really hard to see, and it's not very large at all. And nobody knows exactly what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. But I put a model up here, at least an an artist's rendering of it. And this is what Aaron saw. And not only did he see this, but he paused. Maybe he gasped. But above this Ark of the Covenant, there was this cloud. And it was the presence of God. Once a year, he would go in there. Once a year, he would go through and make these sacrifices. And once a year, he would enter the Holy of Holies, put the incense down, and then take the blood of the, ram, of the, of the bull, which would be a sacrifice, a sin offering for his own sin, and put that on the mercy seat. And then he would take the blood of the goat, And put that on the mercy seat. Because that was a sin offering for all of Israel. He needed to deal with his sin first. And then Israel. After that, the priest passes the heavy curtain. 
and heads out to the courtyard. And he lays his hands on the head of the remaining goat. Aaron confesses Israel's sins at this time and ceremonially transfers Israel's sins to the goat. Then the goat is led outside the the tabernacle. And there's a man, literally, that takes this goat and drives it out into the wilderness and leaves it there, symbolically carrying Israel's sins out away from God's presence. The scriptures tell us in Leviticus 16 that Aaron then returns to the temple. He takes off his holy garments He bathes himself again, making sure he is clean, puts on his normal garments, and offers a burnt sacrifice for himself and for Israel, which again purifies them. The man who drove out the goat washes his clothes and bathes before coming back into the camp. The sacrificial bull and the sacrificial goat, their carcasses are still there, and they are hauled outside the camp and burned. All of Israel during this day fasts. All of Israel sees this day as a holy day and treats it as a Sabbath, something very, very special. This is done once a year. But year after year, after year, after year, in order to make Israel right with God. Now, granted, they did sin at other times, and granted, there was other sacrifices made uh, daily and weekly and so on. But this was the one day God set aside to say, hey, I just want you to understand, I am a holy God. And sin separates us. And you must listen to me. And if you want fellowship with me, you need to listen to what I say. Now, I tell you that story. And you go, Rick, really? I mean, this happened a long time ago. What is the significance of this? Why are you spending so much time here? Why all this fuss about sin and blood and sacrifices? Well, at least back then, these sacrifices didn't take away our sin. It really only covered our sin. In fact, we're going to learn today that there's no more need for a day of atonement. And we're going to see that. But before we jump into our text, let's pray. Father, we come before Thee. You're holy and and we are not. We are confused on why You care about us so much. Why You love us. Why Jesus came. We are. We are so grateful and we're overwhelmed by Your mercy and Your love and Your grace. But You do confuse us, God. We pray today you would open our eyes that that we would be so enamored with what you have done for us because you love us. 
We pray this day, Father, uh, that you would be especially with our missionaries. In our bulletin today, Lord, we, we mention Mimi Hoya. Oh, what a refreshing young lady. She's in Norway serving with YWAM, and we pray right now, even as she um, understands language and culture better, that you would encourage her this day. We're also blessed, God, to have Pastor Paul and Angela with us this morning. And we're going to hear from them in a little bit, but we are so grateful, God, that we are able to partner with these missionaries literally all over the globe as they listen to you and make disciples. Father, we think of all those churches, especially churches in our area, who are proclaiming good news right now, who who are sharing the gospel, who are opening up the word, who are worshiping you with abandon. We think, Father, especially of Northbridge Church and New Hope Church and Wonder Lake Bible Church. Oh, be with those congregants, with those people. God, would you strengthen them this day and would your kingdom advance? Father, I'm so grateful for all those who are working with our kids right now and for our kids who are downstairs learning about you, hearing about you, worshiping you. We pray, dear God, that their eyes would be opened and that you would encourage their little hearts. We thank you, Father, for your grace. And ask you as we open up your word that you would encourage us, convict us, inspire us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. John's friendship with Jesus had changed his life forever. And walking with Jesus gave him great joy. He desired deeply to pass that on, to make sure his friends understood this and that for generations to come, we would be inspired. Now, if you've been here for most of our study, you've heard that introduction before. But did you hear those words? a 90-something pastor who met Jesus 60, 65 years before. And Jesus changed him. And this relationship gave him such joy. And it didn't fade. (laughs) Imagine that. How, How many people have you met? Maybe there's even some right here who were so excited when they met Jesus. They established that relationship with God. They couldn't wait to connect with him every day. And life got busy. Pressures came. And that relationship seemed to fade and to wane. Sometimes we get there, but, but this didn't happen with John. John was part of this, this early church movement. John planted churches. John shepherded the flock. 
And when he was about 90, well, 50 years into the ministry, he said, I, I, I don't think I'm going to be around long. I, I just don't. I better write this down. I need to write this down. I, I can't believe the joy that a relationship with Jesus gives me. Oh, my word. I don't know where you're at. I, I don't know where you are in relationship with God. But wouldn't that be something? John didn't have an easy life. Not at all. But he was trying to say, hey, there's nothing, nothing, nothing more important than connecting with God. And not only connecting with God, but they have him walk with you and you with him through life. <laughs> this is something. So this is John. This is the author. And John didn't mince his God-inspired words in 1 John. He speaks of God and sin in the very first part of the letter. In fact, it's actually shocking as you read that and as we've gone over it the last few weeks. John wanted to just make sure, hey, you know what? You might be a little fuzzy about God, but I want you to know God is light. <laughs> God is good. God is pure. And he doesn't have any kind of fellowship with sin or darkness. We get a little bit of a picture of what the priest had to do and go through back in the Day of Atonement. But John was just trying to say God is light and cannot coexist with darkness. John knows that sin affects our relationship with God, which in turn then affects our relationship with others. So because God desires strong relationships with him and with others, inside and outside our walls, he lovingly sent Jesus to be our advocate and propitiation. Now, to be quite honest, these are probably not words that roll over, roll out, <laughs> roll off your tongue. All right, when someone says, "Hey, tell me a little bit about Jesus," hey, no problem. He's our advocate and propitiation. Yesterday, I got a text from my seventh grade grandson, one of them. And he says, Gramps, you know, I mean, it's a term of endearment, you know. Gramps, what are you teaching tomorrow? I wrote back this, this line. I said, 1 John 1, 2, 1, and 2. Jesus is our advocate and propitiation. And I sent it. Sharon looked at me and says, what are you saying? I go, he's going to ask. I know he's going to ask. There's no way. I, I don't care how wonderful his parents are. They have not talked about this. Later that night, I got to sit down with Joey and explain what propitiation is all about. And so I, I got some of you a little bit wondering right now, and some of you know the term. But if you were to ask some of your neighbors or maybe someone that works with you at the office or whatever and say, hey, who's Jesus? Who's Jesus? You get some answers like this. Jesus is an eschological 
prophet. He's a Galilean holy man. He's a magician. He's an innovative rabbi. He's a trance-inducing psychotherapist. He's a Jewish sage. He's a political revolutionary. He's an uh, Essene conspirator. conspirator. He's an itinerant exorcist. He's a historicized myth. A peasant artisan. A Torah-observant Pharisee. A philosopher. A reformer. And finally, maybe, you might get an answer like this. Well, he's the very embodiment of Yahweh God. But probably not. Let's look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can open them. If not, you can follow along on the screen. But John clearly sees who Jesus is, and he answers that question in the first two verses. So 1 John chapter 1, starting um, with these words. My dear children, I, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. John calls Jesus our advocate. John starts off by using a phrase, my little children. And in this book, he uses it seven times. It's a term of endearment. It's a term that, that well, kind of signifies he's maybe dad, and that dad is maybe talking to his kids. He's writing letter to this family of his, to his friends, so that they will not sin. That should probably catch our eyes a little bit. He understood how devastating sin is, the consequences of sin, how it separates you from God. So his desire was this, hey, hey kids, I, I don't want you to sin. I don't want you to break relationship with God. That is definitely important. But I know you will sin. I know you will sin. The verb, if anyone does sin, conveys the strong pro probability that it will actually occur. John's expression actually could be translated like this. If anybody sins, and I know it will happen. And then he continues. John has made it clear that in this life, we can't be sinless. But he does believe that sin that we can sin less because of the intimate relationship we have with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Sin is not our master, and we don't have to live underneath its power. In Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes this, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to its sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, Paul writes, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. 
No longer. It once was, but you're a brand new creature. You're a brand new creation. God changed you from the inside out and gave you power and authority over sin's pull. Paul's strong command to believers assumes that Christians are no longer slaves to sin and are given the spiritual means to have victory over sin. Sin can entangle you and trip you up, as the author in Hebrews 12 says. But in Jesus, we have the resources and the power to overcome the power of sin. The Christian life really is walking with God in a life of repentance. John uses a courtroom metaphor, metaphor here. He says, and, and when you do sin, you're going to have an advocate. a special advocate, one who pleads our case before the Father, and our advocate is going to be Jesus, the righteous one. John states that believers have Jesus who is their advocate. The word for advocate, at least in Greek, means helper, one who is called to come alongside in a time of need. What a great picture. Can you even imagine that? that? That we have Jesus, God's Son, up in heaven, being our helper, our advocate. That Jesus comes alongside of us and pleads our case. He reminds the Father of our justification, that we are clean and are standing and that Christ's blood has satisfied God's wrath. Oh boy. If some of you heard that sentence, even for one of the first time, you go, what do you mean satisfy God's wrath? I thought God was a God of love, and God cares about me. He does. But we have to understand that there's many facets of God. And God is love, but God is also just. So let's look at why Jesus is our propitiation. First John chapter 2, verse 2. He himself, Jesus, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. It has an accurate translation. But in my opinion, we need to write propitiation in there. And we'll share with you why. Not only for our sins, but for the sins of all the world. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice, our propitiation. And John now informs us why Jesus can be our advocate. Why Jesus can talk to God and be able to let God know that sins are taken care of. That his wrath does not have to occur on his kids because of their sin. It is because Jesus was made a propitiation, an atonement for our sins. Now the word propitiation is a very important word in the New Testament. It's the word that carries the idea of satisfaction. Jesus Christ, by his bloody sacrifice on the cross, satisfied God's holiness and turned away his righteous wrath from sinners. The wrath that should have been poured out on Rick, 
was poured out on Jesus. The judgment that Rick should have experienced was experienced by Jesus. The hell that Rick should have experienced is experienced by Jesus. John MacArthur, in one of the commentaries that I was looking at this last week, says this, and and I think it's classic to understand. Propitiation is necessary because of sin, he writes. Sinners continually shatter God's perfect law, righteously offending creator. He must react justly in holy anger, wrath, and judgment. God's justice must be satisfied. Every sin ever committed by every person who has ever lived will be punished in one of two ways. Either God's wrath will be satisfied when all unrepented and unbelieving sinners suffer eternally in hell. Or, for all who have by the convicting and regenerating power of the Spirit repent and believe savingly in Jesus, God's wrath is satisfied by the punishment of Christ Himself on the cross. You see, divine punishment rendered forgiveness according to God's sovereign love and grace. You see, we all have sinned. We all are dirty before God. This is what's so amazing. If we treated, well, God in this way, why why does he draw to us? (laughs) Why does he care about us? But we sinned, and God's plan to deal with our sins and to reconcile us was Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter um, 5, verse 21, Paul writes this, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God. We could have a relationship with God. We could be restored, redeemed. The work of atonement accomplished by Christ on the cross is where God's holiness and God's love meet, where God's judgment and God's mercy kiss. Later on, and we'll get there, remember that John doesn't write 1 John in this systematic fashion. He writes a little bit um, like a hyperactive kid. He gets distracted every once in a while. And what happens, it just flows. And so he's going to bring back propitiation again later on. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. So we might have a little bit of review when we get there. But this is what John writes in 1 John 4. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world that we might have eternal life through him. This, real, this is real love. Not that we love God, but here it is. But that he loved us, and he sent his son as a sacrifice, as an atoning sacrifice, as a propitiation to take away our sins. So propitiation refers to Christ's satisfaction of God's judgment, his justice. 
making it agreeable for God to forgive us. Christ's atoning sacrifice is a propitiation. God's justice and His mercy are equally satisfied. And as in the Old Covenant, the Day of Atonement, which we had talked about, God met His people when the blood of the sin sacrifice was sprinkled on that altar. So in the New Covenant, Christ's sacrificial death has brought us into fellowship with God. In fact, the most beautiful way to look at it is, is the way the author of Hebrews puts it. That Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. It's not something that has to be done over and over and over again. In Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 25. And he, Jesus, did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again, like the high priest here on earth, who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If thou had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now, once for all, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes the judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time, as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many. He, Jesus, will come again. Not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus is our advocate and propitiation. Can, can you believe that? After hearing what the Hebrews did for hundreds of years, after recognizing again that every one of us deserve God's wrath, not His love. Do those words hit you? That you can have a relationship with God because God loves you and loves me. That we can have an advocate who reminds God the Father, hey, hey, I paid the debt of his sin. I paid the debt of her sin. He, she is a son, is a daughter of God. Oh. Do we deserve it? No. Maybe for John, this is what mesmerized him. Maybe after all those years, he, he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that God loved him, wanted a relationship with him, and the joy that he was given because of that relationship. Wow, we're grateful. I hope you're grateful. And that as we continue to worship, we sing from our hearts, Lord, I, I, I need you. Lord, I thank you. Lord, you are my advocate.
and propitiation. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you. It's hard to understand, Lord, why. Even when we come to faith, that, that sin seems so attractive and, and it hurts you and it hurts us. But you remind the Father over and over again that you died on a cross. You spilt your blood and it satisfied his anger because you were the perfect sacrifice once and for all. God, thank you. Thank you for loving us, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for being our friend and for dying. We pray all these things in your son's name.